just maybe you didn't hear over the noise that I noticed earlier on with the kids. You are all very welcome. I do trust that you are enjoying your time amongst us here at BFC, even on a grotty day like today. Isn't it great to come and worship God, come and enjoy each other's company and enjoy his company? When we consider parenting, when we talk about parenting, when we teach about parenting, we talk mostly, if not solely, about what we should be teaching them. That's what she looks like when she's very happy. We talk about things like morality, the, you know, the, instilling right and wrong into a child. We talk about values, the values that we live by and the values we want our children to grow to live into. Values like honesty, well, don't lie. Values like kindness, don't bite your brother. You know, or respect, don't talk to daddy that way or don't use our sofa like your soft play area. We talk about educating a child so they can properly function in the world. And all of those things are important. And the Bible is certainly not silent on the issue of a parent's responsibility to teach a child well. A role that we shouldn't abdicate to teachers in schools or even Sunday school teachers or or our grandparents. And the Bible gives very clear commands about teaching our children. Things like Deuteronomy 6-7, it says, impress them, talking about God's moral codes, on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. In the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, 4, it talks about, it says, Fathers, don't exacerbate your kids. Don't wear them out. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And therefore, normally on occasions like today, we like to talk about what we should be teaching our children. But today, we're not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to do the very opposite the reverse. Instead, this morning, I want to talk to you about what our children should be teaching us. Because the Bible doesn't just talk about what we should teach our kids, important though that is, it also talks about what our, we should be learning from them. And being a parent, there are, there are some observations that I've made about my kids and about kids generally. And this has led me to some comparisons between You know, us super smart adults who have finished school and gained untold wisdom and experience from the world and from comparison with kids who basically know nothing, or so we think. And here are seven things I have observed about kids and how they live. The first thing I've noticed is that kids don't worry. Kids seem to worry about nothing. Adults seem to worry about everything. Adults worry when they're unwell. Adults worry when they're not unwell because they are expecting the next sickness to come along soon. They worry when life is tough. They worry when life isn't tough. I don't know if you find I do this now. When things are going well, we worry because we know something terrible is about to happen. Something is lurking around the corner. We worry because there's nothing to worry about. And it's funny because when people are worry-free, we call it naivety. We think that worry is actually kind of the proof of maturity and adulthood and responsibility. But it's funny because God doesn't think that way. God doesn't say, well done to those guys in the Bible who worried the most. He says, well done, you guys have got it. You understand. You've learned to worry. You're a real adult now. In fact, he seems to do the opposite. He continually tries to get him to trust him more and thereby worry less. And to be a worrier isn't a sign of maturity and an acceptance of life. Otherwise, God wouldn't have gone to the trouble of telling us time and time again, like Jesus did in Matthew 6.25. 
He said to us, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, and about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more important than food and body more important than clothes? That's the first observation. The second observation I've noticed is that kids don't count the cost of everything. Well, if I go to her party, then I'm, I won't be able to commit to that play date the next day because I might be a bit tired. And I want to go to the park to play on the swings, but really I've got a very busy day tomorrow, so I should probably go to bed early. <laughs> These are things I've never heard my kids say. You'll be pleased to hear. But I hear it from adults all the time. And people who generally need less sleep and probably know better than them anyway. We've had moments where Joshua, my, my two-year-old son, has literally fallen asleep whilst having dinner. His face has dropped into the food, gets up again, has another mouth, goes down again. He is that tired. I've never heard Abigail, my four-year-old, say, well, if I spend my pocket money on those sweets, then I won't be able to save up for that other thing next week. And if I go to that party, then I'm going to have to invite that person to my party, and it will be very busy and complicated. They don't think that way. But when I listen to people's excuses and my own excuses, it comes down to us counting the cost for every option that we have. To go to that event or not, to ring that person or not, to serve in that way or not, to help that person or not, to join that team, to start that club. And in the end, what we're doing is we're placing value on people and things. They are worth this much effort, this much time, this much money, Kids are the opposite. Kids are active until they physically drop. And I think that's a great example for us. That's the second thing I've noticed about kids. The third thing I've noticed, kids are always learning new things. It's funny because the perceived belief behind this is that kids are, it's inherently easier for kids to learn things. We say they have these kind of spongy brains. You know, this, they can absorb things naturally. They have this natural plasticity people believe in their brain. So they can just take things much easier. You know, they're like a sponge, we're like a loafer, you know, in comparison with our brains. Do you know, it's funny, that may prove to be a load of rubbish. Do you know that? I found out. It's funny because they, they quote things like, well, you know, you teach a child to be bilingual and by the age of five they're fluent in two languages. I tell you, if we wanted to be fluent in language, it would take us half that time to learn if we really engaged ourselves. They now believe, actually, the reason why kids seem to learn sooner is because they're not afraid about making mistakes. And that may prove to be the real reason. It may prove not to be a physiological reason, something to do with their brains. It may just be a pride issue. So with Abigail, as she learns language, she gets it wrong. We correct her. She gets it wrong again, and we correct her again, and she learns that way. But we adults, we struggle with that. And it's a shame as well, because I like the excuse that kids have natural learning capacity that I don't have. It's a great excuse for me not learning things or not engaging myself. It may not be a true excuse. Jesus hints at this in Luke 10. He talks about even the apparently wise adults not understanding his teaching. But he says, actually, to the child, the one with the humility to learn, he says the secrets of the kingdom will be revealed. And it's funny because we nag our teenagers to work hard and we do it between advert breaks of soaps that are just rotting our minds. We insist that our kids, it's so important that you read for pleasure. You just read books time and time again. But I suspect many of our four-year-olds have ten times as many books as their adults and their parents. And we have access to the, the greatest knowledge and the greatest opportunity to learn that mankind has ever known in its history. And yet for all the 400 million Google searches that are made every day, I'm not sure our knowledge is actually growing 
that much. Something else, perhaps, to observe from our kids. Albert Einstein, here's a cheery quote for you. The day you stop learning is the day you start dying. There you go. Just to make, make you happier. Do you know, I, that's why I love being around children who are constantly learning new things. Because it challenges me to watch probably a bit less TV, play a few less computer games, and engage myself in a continual process of learning. Fourth thing I've noticed, my fourth observation, is they're always trying new things. I've heard it said that you reach middle age when the only thing you exercise is caution. Probably true. We, we adults get very stay, don't we? We say we don't like something or something's not for us, and probably before we've even tried it. My kids are the very opposite. They try everything, especially the crazy stuff. Joshua tried to fly the other day. He tried flight. And um, so he kind of jumped off the sofa and flapped his arms. And um, he, was, he, was, he flew for sort of a split second. Um, but actually, it was enough to convince him that it might work if he flaps his arms a bit more. Enough to convince him he could try again, flapping crazier. But it's funny because for many adults, the path of their life, the, the choice of career, their friendship group, their hobby, it's made at 18 and then it's set for life. They would never admit it, but I think our diaries might bear that out better than we would admit. As we preachers like to do, I like to find verses to back up my observation. And I kind of drew a blank with this one. Um, but instead, I did realize that across the Bible that there are dozens of life stories about this. So rather than just one verse to prove it, there's dozens of life stories of people where new opportunities came up to do new things. There may have been a new giant that needed defeating, a new church that needed planting, a new miracle that needed performing, a new moment that they could stand up and speak, a new person to meet, a new person to chat with, an injustice to be confronted, a lake that needed walking on for some reason, a crowd of 5,000 people that needed feeding with a pat lunch. The Bible is packed full of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and they're all new things to them. A couple of weeks ago, I led a chapel service at Penthorpe School, which is um, a private school up the road. And I spoke about seasons, seasons in nature and seasons in life. And the lesson that I wanted to teach to these 8 to 13-year-olds was about um, looking for new opportunities in every season. So like how to enjoy autumn and winter and not just summer, and, but also in life as well, how to look for new opportunities in the seasons in life that God has given us. And... Um, It's as if God has to dump a billion tons of leaves on the ground every year to remind us that new things are okay and actually part and parcel of life. And it was funny because I remember it so clearly. Midway through, I found myself preaching to myself in front of these kids because I thought, actually, these kids know it. These kids are living it. I'm I'm the one that actually needs to hear this lesson much more than they do about finding new opportunities to do new things. Kids barely go a day without trying something new. We adults often go through decades living the same day, the same week, the same month, time and time again. Let the kids teach us the fun and excitement and adventure of new things. The fifth thing I've noticed, they have real friends, kids. I still remember, and it was a long time ago, but I still remember it, crying because I wasn't going to be in my best friend's class back in primary school, a boy called Ben Coulson. Still remember it. 
My four-year-old daughter Abigail started school this year and she's already made some great friends. And I suspect actually in the two months of school she's probably made closer friendships than perhaps some of us have done in our workplaces where we've been there for many years. Perhaps one of the greatest philosophers in our nation and our time, Winnie the Pooh, said this. If you live to be a hundred, I want to live to a hundred minus one day, so I never have to live without you. There you go. That's true friendship. And you find it in reception classes up to sixth form colleges all across this nation and the nations. But do we see it in the workplaces and the offices and the streets and the neighborhoods and the churches with adults? Proverbs 18.21 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let me translate that proverb to modern language. You can have a thousand Facebook friends and still struggle, but instead better to go for one good friend who will always be there. And it's like friendships just seem to kind of mean more to children. And yet as we grow, we seem to opt for independence. Friends are great, but you know, I'm, I can live without them. But the Bible never speaks about independence as we grow up. In fact, it increasingly says the opposite. He says you're to grow independent from your parents so that you then become interdependent in other places. So you're not always with them, but actually you're in a wider group, not a smaller group. He talks about... Um, God who made us said that you, you need to be in community because that's how I made you. I don't know if you've read the book of Genesis, but it, it's got that strange phrase about us being made in the image of God. And some people think, well, that means that God looks something like humans. And it's not a kind of physical resemblance, but rather we are like him in our relational status. The Bible says that God is three persons in one, perfect unity, perfect community, And then the Bible says we were called to be made made like him. We are a communal creature. And this interdependence, rather than independence, it begins with our families. The problem with families, they can get a bit introspective and a bit weird. So then God opens it up a bit and he puts us into ever-growing community circles. If you read the Old Testament for the Israelites, God placed them into families. Then it says he put them into clans. Then he put them into tribes and then the nation as a whole. In the New Testament, we believe with God's new people, we believe he's done the same thing. He puts us in families. Then he puts us in kind of little clans. We call them home groups, where we kind of relate to some people better. Then he puts us in tribes, which may, you may see that our church family here as being a tribe. And then he puts us into the national church and then the global church. And all the time, we should hear God's heart. We need to be in relationship with people. We need friends. And I should add as well that, because I found a great quote, so I've got to add in somehow, um, that the need for friendship is linked to the need for forgiveness. Because so often we don't have good friends because we can't cope when something's gone wrong. And I've never quoted from him before, but the Dalai Lama, there you go, here's a quote I found. Look at children. Of course they may quarrel, but generally speaking, they do not harbor ill feelings as much or as long as adults do. Most adults have the advantage of education over children, but what is the use of an education if they show a big smile whilst hiding negative feelings deep inside? Children don't usually act in such a manner. If they feel angry with someone, they express it, and then it is finished. They can still play with that person the following day. 
Maybe you do read your Bibles. Maybe you get to these kind of sections in Numbers or Chronicles where it just it seems to be lists of names which seems very boring and very made up. You know, Shebediah, son of Obadiah, of the tribe. You know, it just seems irrelevant. Actually, I think God put it in there. So whenever we read stuff like that, we think these guys knew their place in the community. Do you know yours? Sick thing. They seek help. Kids ask for help. If my kids hurt themselves, I hear about it straight away. If my kids need help with something, I hear that straight away. But when was the last time we said to someone, actually, I'm struggling, can you help? When was the last time we said, well, actually, do you know what? This has kind of become an issue, a problem in my life. You seem to be a little bit further down the road than I am. Can you help me? And that takes a huge amount of humility. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, he says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're the models for humility because they're the ones they know they need help. But we can become so self-confident, especially us blokes. Blokes are particularly bad at this. We see ourselves as the master of our destiny, of all that we survey. We also, see, we also think that we're experts at DIY. <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm a bloke. But then we don't take it just to ruining our front rooms with terrible wallpaper and you know, dodgy lighting. We take it into our lives. We think that everything must be do-it-yourself. Well, I'm struggling in the home. Well, let's do it myself. I need to sort it out. Struggling in the marriage, why well, do it yourself? I, I'm the husband, I need to sort these things out. Asking for help, it's a humility thing, but it's certainly something we can learn from our kids. And the fact is, the gospel we talk about is all about the fact that we need help, that none of us can do everything by ourselves. We tried to live a great life and we pretty much failed miserably. Kids could and should teach us about humility. But that's kind of looking at number six negatively. What about positively? Maybe you see, you see someone who is doing well in life. Why not ask them, how do you do it? Well, you seem to be a bit more chilled about your kids, about your job, about your work or your busyness. What's your secret? Those people seem to be in that strange, un- un- unnatural state of being happy and content. Hey, weirdos, what are you smiling about? And how can I get some? Proverbs 12.15 says... The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Adults somehow have believed the lie that these are the cards that have been dealt to us and we just have to deal with it. It's funny because kids don't think that way. But then that attitude causes real problems down the line because then we take it into our parenting. And our refusal to help actually causes us to repeat problems generationally with our children. Raising kids is so hard. So why don't we listen to the wisdom of others who have gone before them? If we're struggling with our teenagers, why don't we invite other parents of teenagers, sit down and talk about the issues that we've got? Why do we have to live like we're the first ever parents on earth? Why do we live in this bubble belief that believes that no one in the history of the world has ever struggled like we have? No one has ever been as busy as we have. First, it's not true, but if it does feel like it, then we need to get help. Last thing I've noticed, my final observation is that kids demonstrate what we believe is faith what we call faith things like my kids expectation is when it's dinner time there will be food on the table even if they didn't go to tesco's or cook anything their expectation is when they get too big for the clothes in their wardrobe magically new clothes will appear that will fit them 
My kids expect that every morning, mummy and daddy will feel the same way about them as they did the night before. My kids expect, and they, my, my daughter even says this, my older daughter, not my younger one. Um, she says, whenever I'm, whenever I'm disciplining her, she says, yeah, but daddy still loves me whether I'm naughty or not, doesn't he? And it's brilliant emotional blackmail, I tell you. <laughs> Honestly, she's very smart for a four-year-old. But it's true, totally is. All those things about faith. And we could learn from that. Faith that our Father in heaven will provide food on our table. If he can do it for people in famine-struck places of the world, I think it's quite a doddle for him to do it in a relatively temperate climate with social security as well. Faith that God will look after our physical needs, our clothes, our home, our cars, the things that we know that we need, he knows as well. Faith that God hasn't changed his mind about us in the night. Well, I'm sure the Bible says that God loves me, but that was written a long time ago. Maybe God's changed his mind. Faith even in discipline, even when we're experiencing a time of discipline from God, that actually that is a confirmation of our status before him and not a proof that it's changed. Sometimes The Bible says sometimes God does discipline us. Sometimes he takes things away from us that are becoming unhelpfully, unhelpful in our lives. Maybe health, wealth, health, securities. Sometimes he allows the times of trial to come. But in Hebrews 12, he says, actually, you know what? That's confirmation that God is treating you like a son or daughter. It's, not, it's a proof of your status for him, not a denial or not evidence of its lack. There's a famous story in, um, in Mark 10 where children are brought to Jesus for the parents to have him blessed. A bit like what we did this morning, although I suspect the children liked Jesus a bit more than they liked me. Um, but the disciples didn't like this. You probably heard this story. Maybe the children hadn't washed their hands properly, or maybe they hadn't said the right respectful words in the right time, or maybe they were trying to pull Jesus' beard out, or you know those kind of things, or wrestle him to the ground. So they sent the kids away, maybe to go and learn a few manners, or to grow up a little bit. Listen, you know, we know Jesus' response. He was indignant. He was furious with the disciples. And he said to them, you want to send them away? Actually, I want you to learn from them. Which is why he said in Mark 10 at the end, he says, Mark 10, 15, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That's about faith. Jesus isn't encouraging us to be childish. Okay, that's different. Paul says in that famous 1 Corinthians 13 passage, when I became a man, I put aside childish nature. Childish is to pick the worst attributes of children, the kind of selfishness, the silliness, the pettiness, and copy them. You see it with particular groups of people, teenagers, men, often women as well. Childlike is to pick their best attributes and to copy those. And this is one of the reasons, actually, we're trying to push people in our church to get involved in kids' work. Not just because you have a wealth of wisdom to teach our kids. Actually, there's a wealth of wisdom that our kids can teach you. We say this because when you hear the prayers of kids in our live wise and bright sparks, they're prayers of faith. Their faith is even so strong, actually they can sometimes pray out loud. It's very scary. Some of us can't do that. Mencius, the Chinese philosopher, says, The great man is he who does not lose his child's heart. You know, in the Bible, there are five, about 500 references to children. Only half of them are talking about literal, ch- physical children. 
That means the rest of them are about us being children before God. They say children, but actually they mean adults like us. So we should in a way see ourselves like as children, not adults. Because before a father in heaven, whether you are 2 or 72, that's what God thinks of you. You may be super clever. You may be able to tie your shoelaces and everything. But an all-knowing God isn't as impressed with those feats of achievement as we perhaps think he should be. So if A, God sees us like a child anyway, and if B, God tells us to be more like them, then I for one want to be asking myself some questions about these seven observations. And if you're a believer here as well this morning, then you should be doubly careful about checking, because really each of them is a gospel moment. And our lives, whether we copy children in this, can actually either be a signpost to our gospel and what we believe, or a barrier to people seeing it through us. Maybe we should ask some questions and our response. Kids don't worry. Am I a worrier? When I chat with people, is the first thing that comes out of my mouth the things wrong with my life or the blessings that I have? We live in a hugely negative culture. When Tony Blair came to power in 1997, he came with the slogan, things can only get better. The current government slogan is keeping our country safe. Very different perspectives, even in the last 15 years. You know, in all generations previously polled, parents always believed things would get better. But in a recent survey, only 23% of parents believed that their kids would enjoy a better quality of life than they did. 61% of those recently polled said that Britain is becoming, a worse, becoming worse as a place to live. We live amongst a worried generation, and some of us blend in brilliantly. But our good news isn't about a tyrant in heaven, but a loving father. Do we demonstrate a confidence in that father's love? Secondly, do I count the cost of everything? Are my relationships suffering because I'm being selfish with my time, energy and money? As a Christian, is my mission suffering because I'm constantly worrying about what that next event, what that next invite, what that next service opportunity, what that next relationship might cost me? Do I really believe that God would allow me my fuel gauge to drop to completely empty while I'm doing things for him? You know, our gospel says that one person didn't count the cost for me. Well, he did, but then he did it anyway. The Bible says that Jesus chose to give his time his energy, even his own life for me. So we shouldn't count the cost because we're living in the good of someone who should have done that but didn't. Thirdly, am I learning new things? For the past, past few years, I've set myself a reading challenge. number of books I want to be reading. I do that because it restricts my time on the iPad, on the computer, on the TV, and it gets me reading fiction, non-fiction, Christian and not. It's a way of ensuring that even when life gets busy, and three kids under the age of four is quite a busy life, that I'm still learning even during that. And to the Christian, learning is even more important because it teaches us more and more about God and what he did for us. And that leads to greater worship, the reason why we're here. Fourthly, do I try new things? Am I willing to try new things, to go to new places, to meet new people? Really, this is about a willingness to take risks. But actually, if you are a believer, then that's the very life that God has called you to. When I read my Bible, I I haven't found one Bible character that didn't achieve something great by not taking a risk. 
As I read through church history, I don't know one hero from church history who didn't take risks to achieve what they achieved. In fact, when I look through any history, Christian or not, there is not a sense that anyone has done anything significant with their lives without taking some kind of risks. A while ago, I gave the church a challenge in this Just Walk Across the Room. And the book is now available at the back. I strongly encourage you, get hold of a copy. It will change your life. If you can't afford it, we'll buy it for you. That's fine. But do read that book. It's great. But have you taken up that challenge? How are you doing with that? When was the last time you remember crossing that room or that office space or that pub or that school gate to go and speak to that new person? Often our children have done it in advance, more likely to do it than we are. Fifthly, do I have good friends or have I become independent? Am I in good community groups? Am I connected to the clans and tribes and nation that God has given me? How strong is my family unit and how well connected is it with other family units? The gospel says that though we were saved individually by God, we were saved to be a new community of God, demonstrating a better way than our individualistic culture around us. Sixthly, am I humble enough to ask for help? When was the last time I really asked for someone's help and not just to rubber stamp something I've already decided to do anyway? When we need advice, do we turn to Google or do we turn to a close friend? As a parent, as a husband, as a church leader, as a human being, there there is a wealth of knowledge and wisdom around us if we lay aside our adult pride and ask for help. You know, the good news that the Christians talk about the gospel all actually begins with some disturbing news at the beginning, that we all need help. We all are lost in sin. But the Bible does say everyone who reaches out to God will find help and will find healing. And finally, how is my faith? Do I demonstrate everyday childlike faith? Is it something I trust, but with a safety net? Maybe savings, maybe uh, option B, maybe self-reliance. Who in my family is the faith master? Is it me or is it my four-year-old daughter? When I consider my future, am I confident in the goodness of my father in heaven as my kids seem to be confident in my goodness? As I consider my prayers and my hopes and my ambitions, would I get that commendation of good faith that Jesus gave to that foreign centurion? Or would Jesus turn around to me and say, Ben, where is your faith? Like he said to his disciples who should have known better. Our gospel is all about faith and not works. It is about completely trusting in Jesus' work for us and a total refusal to trust our own efforts. So how would you do with those things? Alex and Denise, as Lily grows, teach her well, as I know you will. Talk through the stories of the Bible, not just the kiddie ones like Jonah and Daniel and Noah, but teach her about Jesus' stories, the stories that he demonstrated, the ones that he brought. Alex and Denise, put God first in your marriage and your family and he will bless you. But also stop, look and listen to Lily because God wants to teach you things through her as well. Remember that she has so much to teach you about life, about God and about yourselves. And when you are tempted to take yourself too seriously or the world too seriously or life too seriously, then allow her laughter and joy to gently deflate that inflated opinion of yourself. And if God has blessed anyone here with grandchildren or children, even teenagers, watch them for a while. 
consider how do you how are you doing with these things? And if you haven't got kids, then with the permission of the parents, obviously, be around kids. Just watch them. Watch them worship on a Sunday morning. Watch your nephews and nieces. Offer to come around and have dinner with families. Just, just be around them. Come and go and play with them. It could be the schooling that you desperately need, and it could be the schooling that God really wants to give to you. Let me end with one final quote. Angela Schwint, who's an author, or who was, while we try to teach our children all about life, our children teach us what life is all about. Let me close in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for our children. We thank you that they are a gift and a blessing from you. But we thank you as well that they have much to teach us. And I pray for every person here who knows about one of these things perhaps, or maybe all of these things, that they know that they could learn a bit from the kids, that you would just confirm that in their hearts, and that by your spirit you would give them the desire and the passion and the ability to change their life. I thank you that, Lord, when you came into our life, you didn't leave us in the state that we were in, but you began a work of transformation to make us more like children of God and less like adults of this world. And Lord, I pray for every person here who worries or is counting the cost of everything or doesn't want to try or learn or doesn't feel they've got the time or the ability to do any of these things. I pray that you would just make time for them. You would encourage them. That you would show them the importance of what you want to teach us today. That they would be more childlike before their Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray for all these things. Amen. Amen.